On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, Michelle Miller is back, this time to talk about learning myths and realities for episode 291. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dr. Michelle Miller is a professor of cognitive psychology at Northern Arizona University. Her research focuses on language and memory. Specifically, Michelle has studied how normal aging affects the ability to produce and comprehend language, language production in brain-injured individuals, and how people produce and comprehend descriptions of interpersonal violence, such as crime reports published in the mass media. Michelle, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. It's so great to be back here. I feel like you and I had this conversation so many years ago, but I didn't realize it had been that long because it just seems like it's, it's continued. It's been really wonderful. You've recommended some guests for the podcast since then, and I just feel like we're in correspondence pretty regularly, mostly over Twitter. It's so nice to, to just have this relationship with you and get to keep learning from you. Oh, and, and likewise, I, I so appreciate the opportunity for professional development and forging those those connections as well. And so, yes, it seems like time has flown. And I don't know, in psychology, we, we have the term uh, parallel play with, when kids are next to each other, engage with each other, but, but doing their own thing. So uh, perhaps that's a bit of what we're seeing here. One of the things I was excited about talking to you about today, Michelle, it has to do with myths. And Every time I talk about these myths and, and get a chance to talk to an expert like you, I do want to remind people that I think I subscribed to perhaps all of these in my past years. I started out before I was in academia, I started out in corporate training. And there's still it's rather prolific there, some of some of the myths that are around there. And so we we thought we'd explore some of these things, but also today I know you're excited to share about what's kind of gone on since your book Minds Online was released and some of your your newer findings. So I'm excited about our conversation, but let's start out with, uh, I was going to say an easy one, but you and I know it's not easy. <laughs> so one of the things that's floating around there, and I, I'm, I'm going to confess, Michelle, I have, I, I bought into this, is the idea that we should ask our students to take notes by hand because it's going to force them to learn better because cognitively it slows me down. I can type really fast and I don't have to think as hard. You know, if you're a touch typist, that kind of thing. And so what can you tell us about, about this? Is it a myth or is it true that, that if we have our students, don't, don't let them use a device, no laptops, no typing, we force them to handwrite. Uh, what does the research say around that? Oh, well, I'm going to give the the modern uh, Facebook-inspired answer and say, it's complicated. Yes. And I know we psychologists, you know, we deserve our, our bad reputation for this, you know, oh, well, you know, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. But this really is a case where I wouldn't necessarily put the idea that laptops affect some cognitive processes that have to go on during uh, note-taking. I wouldn't necessarily chalk that up as a myth. Just when I think, you know, things that I have no problem classifying as a myth, things like 
oh, you're left-brained or, or right-brained, or that we have these very set learning styles, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, that kind of thing. Those are a little bit easy. But yeah, this one is, is complex, and it's really, really fascinating. There's a couple of uh, really definitive studies on this issue. So one study that has been discussed quite a bit, and rightfully so, it's a great study, was conducted by Pam Mueller and Daniel Oppenheimer. The pen is mightier than the keyboard. That's part of the title, which is very catchy. And in a nutshell, what they did is is a head-to-head test of students taking in, I believe it was a TED Talk, so kind of a simulated lecture, and taking notes through, through different modalities. And they then were able to administer a very controlled test of both conceptual knowledge that that was retained from what students had seen and also factual knowledge. And they reported that, especially in the case of conceptual knowledge, that students using the laptop retained less. And they also noted that, that students wrote down quite a few more words when they were using the laptop, which led to this, I think, very reasonable kind of conclusion or interpretation that when we are able to take down more, it's kind of a more is less phenomenon. Uh, I'm able to take down a whole lot from what I'm seeing. Therefore, I'm not pulling out the important nuggets. And this this was, uh, you know, I'm glad that this was out there as a contribution to the literature. However, it's really interesting that out of all the scholarship of teaching and learning, out of all the important questions that go on in our pedagogy, this is one that people seized on. I mean, there are even op-eds in the New York Times on, you know, leave the laptop at the door to my classroom and so on. So it really touched a, a, a nerve that, you know, we can speculate about why. But wow, this led to, I think, a real over, oversimplification of like, well, laptops kill your knowledge. And I think, too, there's people also started to, to run away with or, or overinterpret the idea that this had to do with distraction. So, well, if you're on your laptop, you've got notifications coming in, you'll get distracted, you'll learn less. And while the mechanism, that mechanism definitely happens in that sound, that's not what Mueller and Oppenheimer were looking at in this study at all. And mm-hmm. I believe they were pretty explicit about saying, this is not about the distraction angle, this is about what we take away. What also kind of complicates this as well, and and, and this is wonderful. This is the way science is supposed to work, is that there was a replication and extension that was published actually earlier this year by uh, Kayla Morehouse and her colleagues. And they, uh, when I say replication and extension, they both, you know, did what Mueller and Oppenheimer did, you know, same thing, see if it, it comes out the same, and also tried a few variations to, to get to the bottom of, okay, so what exactly is going on here uh, with the processes that have to do with note-taking? And that replication, not all of the, the findings replicated and not exactly. Now, you know, here again, I, I hope people don't run away with this and say, on the other side, oh my gosh, <laughs> that whole laptop study was debunked. And mm-hmm. that's not the case either. But they did find, they found a different pattern with respect to factual and conceptual questions. There was one condition where laptops actually produced a little bit of a retention advantage. So I think that what that, you know, in turn tells us is 
perhaps this effect is not as overwhelmingly robust as what we would really need to say, hey, let's change our classroom practice and, and do something that is admittedly to me, I mean, pretty drastic to say that students can't have a personal laptop to, to use as their, as their note-taking modality in class. And they also pointed out something as well. Now, now they did absolutely replicate the same finding that you do more, you write more when you, when you have a laptop. But they pointed out too that students also captured not just more words, but more kind of concepts from what they were watching. And that in and of itself can be a good predictor of your performance later on the test, especially if you're able to study. And I think that that kind of also gave us a little reality check at the end of their article. They said, well, let's not forget, you know, we're obsessing here about the learning that goes on as you're taking the notes themselves, the so-called encoding function of notes. So, and to me, that's, that's gravy. If I learn something while I'm taking the notes, wonderful. But really, what are notes about in a practical context? What's called the storage function. My ability to go back and say, uh, all right, here's what I understood. Here's what I need to rehearse and so on. So that's also what they pointed us towards. So, you know, in the end, if it gets us talking about our classroom practices, I say, you know, wonderful. I especially think this was a great opportunity to focus people's ideas on and to get them thinking in a new way about the diversity of learners. And, you know, we take for granted that everyone can naturally pull out their lovely, you know, beautiful notebook and their pen and go to town and it'll be fine but that's not true. So that's something good that comes out of it. I, I say wonderful, but it also does, it, it tells us that, yeah, if we really are going to get into the research, I mean, I don't think everybody who teaches across the disciplines needs to, you know, go back to the original, pick through every single thing of every single one of these articles. But let's be mindful of why we sometimes do get so fascinated with what's essentially one or two or three findings in an area. If we're ready to totally kick over our policies over one thing that we read about, let alone even just reading the article, then then we should question ourselves. I know I'm going to ask you to oversimplify, but when you think about your writing and research in Minds Online, and then you think about what's happened since then, what would be one or two things that you could more emphatically say as researchers, we know this works. I mean, because the, the example we just started with is really a, it depends example. And we want to be careful, like you said, of going too deep on that and assuming that it would work the same way for all people in all contexts. But what are the findings where you go? Yeah, I mean, pretty much different contexts, different people. We're really finding that this does work. Right. Well, to, to pull out some of the, the absolute, you know, greatest hits where I say, yep, everything everything we put down before, I still stand by. I mean, retrieval practice, that is really the one that, that floats to the, to the top, both because it's so highly robust and has, has replicated, you know, time and again and again and again and again, but also because it is a little bit counterintuitive to our traditional teaching practices. I mean, I think there's some other things that have come out of more cognitively oriented research, things like depth of processing that we remember more when we think of something in terms of its meaning or its relevance to ourselves, or perhaps the fact that we remember more when we build on knowledge we already have. Those are good. And I think we can all stand to be reminded of those kinds of principles. But I don't know that experienced teachers necessarily go, you're kidding me. I, I never, that never would have occurred to me. But retrieval practice is a special one. And 
I think that it does require us to, to really reorient how we look at assessment and how students spend our, their time on different aspects of our courses. It, it pushes us to reflect on those in a very good way. And I, I think that we can pretty easily make some of the mindset shifts that take place. And so I think, you know, since Minds Online, I just hear more and more different creative ways that people are bringing these into both face-to-face and online classes. Mm-hmm. You know, I hear new new ways to liven up an in-class quiz. I hear points like, you know, you can do the brain dump at the beginning of, of a class, write down everything you, you remember from last class, no stakes, don't worry about it, talk about it with your neighbor. I mean, that's retrieval practice too. So I think elaborating on that and also really reinforcing and celebrating these ways in which quizzes and tests don't have to look like quizzes and tests. They don't have to have that deadly serious air of ritual and and fear about them. That's one that I I really, really stand by. I think that multimedia for, for learning and interactive multimedia while those also raise some questions of access, because there's going to be, you know, the more rich types of multimedia that we build, the more we do have to think about what are the alternatives for those of us who can't get to them those ways. Those still seem to be a real winner when students can do that. And I think, too, with respect to reinforcing things like thinking skills through practice, that also is not necessarily a surprise factor for experienced teachers. But I think that time and again, it's one that is easy to forget. Many, many incredible luminaries in the field of teaching and learning have pointed out that we come to this with a bias towards content and coverage and students almost always need more practice and more substantive practice than we think they do. And so here too, I just keep hearing more and more from faculty of really challenging, messy assignments that they give their students. And instead of it being this terrible disaster and students ending up in your office complaining, students are grateful. You know, they know that they're going to need to apply their skills in the real world and they do want the challenge. Another myth that comes up for me a lot, and in the institution where I teach, we had a drastic demographic change specifically around race and ethnicity in a five to seven year period, where we went from being a predominantly white institution to having far more students of color, specifically Hispanics. And I think a myth that I see persisting, not just at my institution, but at others, is that What works in one context with one group of students with a particular demographic is going to work anywhere that you go. And I I really do see this becoming a little bit of a myth that we need to challenge ourselves on in terms of how our approaches may need to change in order to serve more diverse students. And what have you found around that, Michelle? Right. There's there's a a positive side to this and what I would consider a kind of a a downside to it now that, you know, starting with the downside or maybe the caution that I would put out to people is the idea that it's just a matter of age or generation that, you know, oh, we need to quote unquote teach differently, whatever that means, because our students have different experiences with technology, they've grown up in a different kind of world or whatever. That idea keeps slipping down on the sort of useful and true meter over over time. So I would kind of steer people away from that one. But yes, when we come to really important and substantive things about students' backgrounds and perspectives. So, for example, being a first-generation college student, there's 
since Minds Online, there's been just such an addition of rich dialogue about this. And, and I think that's, that's wonderful as well. Being a person of color in our society and in educational contexts is important and uh, gender is as well, particularly in some fields where there's continues to be some real issues, representation and other kinds of climate issues. So with that, what's really interesting, what I'm kind of learning as a researcher myself in some of these areas is that we do. We need to, to look at differential impacts. So, for example, there's some interesting work out there on the impacts of, of simply bringing in more course structure. That's a big one for some, for some faculty. Some faculty really have a resistance to say, you know, let's have more formative assessment. Let's tell students more explicitly what we think they ought to be doing week by week in the class, say in the run up to an exam or how to do a project. That gives many faculty pause. And I think their intentions are, are positive and I respect that view. But here's the thing is there's this interesting research showing that for some student populations, that type of structure can have an outsized positive impact. So there's some work that for students of color, that can be very important and can result in, you know, measurable impacts in student success and retention and things like foundational STEM courses, which can really you know, make or break a student's ability to carry out their career plans, what they came to college for in the first place. So there's that. So I'm, I'm really learning to, to look at um, some of these as well. And, you know, I can share as well, we have a project that uh, we reported, some colleagues and I here at NAU reported out this summer, where we, we brought it, in our case, it was a virtual reality activity that was geared to teaching some concepts in organic chemistry. Now, you know, really exciting project to me as somebody who's interested in ed tech for all these reasons. And we did a, a you know, head-to-head control group, intervention group type of, of study with it. And we found, you know, modest but positive impacts on things like final exam scores and letter grades in organic chemistry. However, when I went back and looked at students by first generation status, we found that the impacts were actually much greater for first generation students. Now, I think, you know, we have a lot of work to do to sorting out mechanisms, figuring out how to, you know, extend and amplify that effect. But I mean, what a case, you know, case in point of the fact that different interventions can have different impacts for different students. Now, you know, fortunately, it usually is the case that something like bringing in a new technology that's positive or bringing in some of these supports for students, that can have a net positive effect for all students. And in any case, does not seem to cause harm to any subgroups of students. So it's not like we have to pit, you know, do we serve this group or support that group? That's, uh, you know, we can all be thankful that's not the position we're in as educators. But that's another area where we need to, to look at the nuances. We do need to look at, okay, exactly how and for whom are some of these techniques and technologies having a positive impact? Because sometimes you can find a real hidden gem like we did in our study. You said this, but I just can't resist going back and emphasizing it. As I have been learning more about culturally responsive teaching, we can adapt our teaching to better serve the needs of, as you mentioned, first-generation students, students of color, women, 
But yet, what was inherent in your answer is that it can have a positive effect on all of our students. It will just have a disproportionately positive effect on those students who may be at more of a risk of struggling. And like you were talking about women in underrepresented fields. You also mentioned earlier about your caution, and I'm so glad that you mentioned this because this is a myth I wouldn't have thought to brought up in our conversation today, but is one that still comes up is this generational issue. And I just wanted to reintroduce to listeners some vocabulary, and I'll put some links in the show notes if you want to explore this further. In, and I see this a lot in the K through 12, would be used words like digital natives and digital immigrants. And so this conversation is persisting where it's like, well, I didn't grow up this way. And so therefore, I will just forever not be able to acquire digital skills. You know, I'm just, I'm either technical or I'm not, you know, this binary thinking. But then also the assumption that today's younger students coming in are 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. Oh, they grew up with the tablet in their hand. And so they know all this stuff. And they don't need any additional skills. Let's cancel the, the technology classes. And so both of those perspectives are problematic. And so David White is a researcher in this area who's introduced the idea of visitors versus residents, and that a lot more of his findings are around things of our comfort level in sharing about ourselves online, and that yes, then we do see these generational differences. And of course, it's not true across the board, but more of these younger 18-year-old, 19-year-olds, they grew up oh, sharing pictures of themselves online and, and, and that that being a comfortable thing to do versus sometimes the people who have been at this for a while but not using technology to share about themselves being a little bit more reluctant to share, you know, have an Instagram account or, or what have you and wanting to be a little bit more private. So I will be linking to those things. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because it is definitely one that's still persisting. Yeah, and it's funny, um, a big influence on on my work, both Minds Online and some of the work I'm doing right now, flows from simply having this amazing opportunity every few years to teach a seminar called Technology, Mind, and Brain. And it's usually taught as a senior seminar. It varies a little bit depending on our needs. But I have this opportunity to sit with primarily traditional age college students for a semester and, you know, we look at the research, of course, it's a very research-oriented course, but to get their perspective, which, you know, in all of the discussion, the debates and the op-eds and the generational this and, you know, digital natives that, how frequently do we sit and have intelligent two-way conversations with whoever the, you know, the young people, however that's, that's defined today? And it has been, for me, just so eye-opening. In this latest round last year, iteration of the course, in particular, I was really struck by how many students, when they had negative things to say about impacts of technology, they were talking about their parents. So we're talking, you know, Gen Xers, I, and I count, I'm a Gen Xer myself. They will say, you know, I see how my mom is always on email at home or, you know, my dad is only about 50% there because he's over here and, you know, there's Instagram and, and they see us as being very distracted or, you know, at least some of them do. And I have found virtually none of them to be just these uncritical technology is just part of life. I never thought about it. They think about it a lot. And some of them, they come up with, really clever ways to manage their own kind of technology and the role and impact it has on their own lives. 
for example, in this last seminar, there's a, a group of, of young women were going on, on their big senior trip together. You know, you can picture that. It's our, our last hoorahs, college students, were, they were all going up to Colorado and they were going to see the sights. So they all made a deal before they went up there that there would be no cell phone pictures. There would be no selfies. There would be no posts, no filters. None of that stuff was going to happen. Everybody got a disposable camera and that was it. And they made a pact and they did that for, for their own reasons, which turned out to actually kind of be echoed by some of the research that we read in that very course that, that can in certain ways detract from an experience. So that's the sort of thing I think that more of us ought to be doing whenever we can and keeping in mind as a, as a perspective that these things shade off and there's a spectrum. And you mentioned comfort online as well. That's a very important thing that we do have to think about too. Don't don't look at a at a sea of you know nineteen year old faces, and just assume that we're all okay hopping on say Twitter. I mean, I, I've seen some amazing applications of Twitter. Um, when I was writing Minds Online, I was like, no, nah, I don't think that people are going to use Twitter for any educational purposes. And that I I have definitely been proven wrong on that. However. Again, especially for for women and for people of color, being out on that platform does have its risks. And so that's something that we should think about, too. What are the alternatives for those of us who who don't who have some concerns warranted or, or maybe not so much about being out there? And I'll say, too, one of the most influential things that I've read on that topic uh, was not a research study, but it was a book by John Ronson called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And so I may say that that book scared me to pieces. So so uh, I may be a little bit more cautious than most. But it is it is a perspective that we should be taking into account. Oh, I haven't heard of that one. I'm definitely going to link to it in the show notes. And thank you for that. As you were describing earlier about this really generational effect that now the parents are old enough to have been doing that to our children, right? And not, not paying enough attention to them. Sherry Turkle had a wonderful book out called Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. And I will say that her name came up on Twitter and there were some people that were critical that maybe she went a little bit too far. And to me, it's kind of, well, that's sort of what a book is about. Being provocative can help us have these conversations. But it was very enlightening to me in the sense of having more empathy for my students, that that instead of it being that they somehow are being disrespectful to me or to their colleagues, that perhaps they've never had anyone be able to model for them what it is like to be fully present for either another person one-on-one or a group of people and the kind of power that can come from a learning community. So it's really helped me be more patient and more empathetic and then think, well, you know, you can be angry at them (laughs) or you can realize perhaps I might be one of the few people that can model that for them. And instead of it being a real controlling thing, put those things away to talk about it. And a big thing for us in my class this semester was we decided we had such amazing guest speaker opportunities. We were getting to go out to different businesses and make visits and stuff that, you know, I would talk about. I'm connecting you with these people. I really want to make sure we respect them. Let's talk about what we might do with our devices. But at the same time, if we're in the class and you're, you know, trying to figure out what you're going to do that night for dinner, like, like to try to, or, you know, someone's having some health challenges or whatever, you know, there's some real reasons why we might feel more tied to our phones. And we want to respect and realize that our students have so much of a life outside of our classes. So, and that's, I, I think, such a, a great 
example, kind of a worked example in a way of the kind of, you know, compassionate and student-centered place we need to start with to have some really good uh, and productive applications of the research. And in a way, doesn't it remind us of, of what we were saying about laptops too, of instead of having, you know, this negative, assuming negative intent of like, oh, look at all these students, they're just trying to mindlessly write things down and why can't they focus on me? Yeah, maybe there's maybe there's reasons, which is not to say anything goes. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that example of, of, hey, let's talk about what the norms are going to be on this particular kind of very novel, I'm sure, experience for them. Let's talk about that. I mean, that's, that's how we ought to be uh, handling this in, in so many realms of teaching, I think. Before we get to the recommendation segment, I want to take this time to thank today's sponsor for the episode, and that is Text Expander. Text Expander helps us unlock our productivity And it's one of those tools that's really easy to get started with. And it all starts around what are called snippets. Snippets are little characters that you decide what you want them to be, little abbreviations, if you will, that expand into either longer text forms or just something that you have a harder time remembering. And this happens all over your computer. It can happen in Slack, Trello, Google Docs, web browsers, and Microsoft Word. It'll also... I said fly over. It'll fly over. Yes, it'll fly right over to your to your devices, such as your iPhone, your iPad, and uh, Windows and Chrome as well. So by sponsoring today's episode, they're also offering us a wonderful deal, which is 20% off your first year with Text Expander. If you go over to the link textexpander.com slash podcast, you can access that deal. And please let them know that you heard about Text Expander through teaching in higher ed. As soon as I'm done recording today's episode, I'll be using my text expander snippet to even create the show notes. It's an integral part of my productivity throughout my day, and I'm so grateful for it and hope you'll give it a try. Thanks so much to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. This is a perfect time for us to segue over to the recommendations segment because in a guest speaker in my class, probably, I don't know, six or seven years ago, it's really stayed with me. A student asked the guest speaker, how can I be successful? And the person said, well, what does success mean to you? And the student couldn't come up with any kind of answer. He said, well, I can't really give you advice on how to be successful if you haven't identified for yourself what that means. And that has just really stuck with me, the importance of cultivating that ability in our students to reflect on what it means to be successful, but also for us to be doing this for ourselves. And you don't have to go too far into social media to be reading about people's challenges with, you know, the publisher parish, promotion and tenure, you know, the our academic disciplines defining what's important versus how do we really want to live our lives? What do we want our legacies to be? And and what's really our priorities? And doing that on our own terms. So I came across this article, and I and if you've never visited the Brain Pickings website, just in general, it's a wonderful place. She's the greatest curator I have ever seen in my life. So this is an article about Henry David Thoreau on defining your own success. And I'll just read a small quote from it. If the day and night are such that you greet them with joy, and life emits a fragrance like flowers and sweet-scented herbs, is more elastic, more starry, more immortal, that is your success. 
And so it's just an overview of him, a little bit about him as a person, but a whole lot about his writing around defining success, finding your purpose, and doing what you love. And she just does a lovely job of curating it. So I'd suggest that you use this for yourself as you spend time reflecting about your own success and what that means to you, and then also pass it on to your students as well. And the second thing I'd like to recommend, and I've mentioned Robert Talbert on this show many times. He's been a guest many times. He actually wrote the foreword for my book. I mean, he's a, he's a treasured friend now and a colleague I've learned so much from. He wrote a post on his blog called The Urgent and the Important. And both Robert and I are really passionate about the subject of productivity. And something that comes up often is how we, and it actually started with Eisenhower. There was the Eisenhower matrix where he defined the difference between urgent and important. And then Stephen Covey really expanded that and made it a very popular thing. So Stephen Covey would talk about rather than just responding to the phone that's ringing or the door, (laughs) the interruptions, if we spend our entire lives that way, we're not really getting to what he called the bigger rocks, the big rocks in life and, and the more purposeful stuff that really we have to decide it's important and is never going to be an alarm bell ringing unless we make it that way. We decide this is important to us. And so it's just a really lovely way because when I describe this to students or to faculty, there is often just this confusion, which is so understandable because we're so accustomed to living in the urgent Ah, the emails, the, the, and when I talk about, you know, managing your email, well, no, of course I have to do that. And it's like, well, you know, if we don't take it outside of the email, then you're just letting other people's requests run your life. You're never taking charge of what's important and adding additional perspective in. So it's often confusing because they go, well, no, it's important. But when I'm saying, well, no, that's more urgent. <laughs> so we have to look at these things a little bit differently. And he just did such a great job of defining it and really challenging us. So he says, I have two kinds of problems the urgent and the important. He's referring, by the way, to taking on the role of department chair. The urgent are not important and the important are never urgent. And it's really a challenge as a leader, as a teacher, I mean, to really think through these things and to set up expectations for ourselves to be spending the time in those places that unless we decide this is crucial, I'm going to make the effort to carve out time to spend on this, it it isn't going to happen. So it's a wonderful article. I'd suggest you take a look at that. And I'll link to both of those in the show notes. And Michelle, now I get to pass it over to you for your recommendations. Oh, thanks. And it's so wonderful that that you're referencing Robert Talbert's work. As for my own technology policy in classrooms, what now lives in my syllabus, I borrowed it from Robert's. Mm. And so if you want to know what that is, go read what he had to say on the subject. So uh, echoing that uh, endorsement, a couple of of, uh, recommendations, I guess, first off is talking to your, talking to your students two-way, asking their, their take on this. And, and here I want to give it just a heartfelt thanks and recognition for actually two of my students who are, who are filling this role right now, Esme Erdenast and uh, Deja Jansen. So we're working together closely this semester. They're right now harvesting quotes from the internet, both academic, scholarly, and pop culture having to do with technology and its impacts on us, especially in the area of memory, which ties into some current writing that I'm doing right now. And we have lively conversations every week in my, and so my perspectives are, are really changed all the time. So thanks so much to Deja and to Esme. And as far as recommendations, here's another really concrete one that I, I'm still just loving that I brought in a couple months ago. So 
This is using a scheduling app, a scheduling program. So there are things that human brains do well, and there's things that computer brains do really well. And figuring out, you know, how about three o'clock on Tuesday? How about two o'clock on Friday? All that stuff is so much better mediated by an app. And I, I started this, um, I brought in actually the one that I use is Acuity but I'm sure there's there's lots of other options as well. This And it actually does sync with my in-house calendaring system on my campus, which is fine, but people outside of, of my campus cannot use it. And it's not very student-friendly. I don't think students can access it at all. And more on that in a minute. But, but basically, you know, I was sitting there kicking back and forth what turned into a series of at least eight to 10 emails about, you know, scheduling with somebody outside of NAU just for a simple 30-minute phone conversation. And we in Arizona have the additional fun that we don't observe daylight savings time. Um, so <laughs> all summer long, we're, uh, you know, you're having to bend over backwards and say, no, no, this is when it is actually, you're guaranteed to, to have something, you know, go wrong. And I finally said, forget it. I can't do this anymore. This is, this is urgent, but it is not important and not a good use of my time. But here's the thing is after I brought this in and you know, now I just have a link. It's like, if you want to, you know, you want to meet up with me, click in and, and do it here. I distributed that to students. And, you know, here's the thing is I know that our students here, they seem to use email differently than and that that may be a real generational thing. And there's a lot of friction and kind of hurt feelings that go on with, you know, students not canceling ahead of time or not picking up emails. And, of course, especially for some students who find it kind of intimidating to come up to a professor and say, hey, I can't make your office hours. When are you available? Introverted students as well. Just having a link to say, hey, here's what you can do. And Acuity in particular lets me set up different kinds of appointments, not just length or, you know, phone versus in person, but I can set specifically student meetings of different kinds. And those have special parameters. So students, I let them schedule and cancel on a shorter time frame than otherwise. And I even open up some Saturday times only to students, not to other people in certain crunch times of the semester. So it lets me do that. And what a different way to make myself available to students. So definitely a win-win-win across the board. Enough so that uh, also, you know, those, hey, we should get together for coffee. I want to pick your brain. I love those. I love to, to have those meetings with colleagues and friends to catch up. But, you know, again, the scheduling is, is a nightmare. So like it or not, my friends also get those. And if, so if you want to have a coffee date, you can click in it and grab a coffee date. So on a productivity, personal sanity, and also a breaking down some barriers with students, um, this, this acuity thing has been wonderful. We now do all of our classes through our Institute for Faculty Development. The registrations take place on Acuity. And I also did guest speakers. So it was like a class, but they could only pick one of them. And then there was only one student allowed, if you will, like using their their examples. But then it automatically sends out confirmation messages. But then, as you know, you can customize those confirmation messages because students tend to use texting devices more. You can have them give their cell phone and then it can text them a reminder if that's going to work better than email, as you mentioned. I mean, there's so much that you can do. When I start to feel a little bit out of 
sorts with trying to balance having, you know, a, a newish job at my institution and new responsibilities and also trying to keep the podcast going as strong as it's been, I oftentimes come back to, well, if you could just kind of tweak the acuity stuff, it can do so much. You can have intake forms so that you can get exactly the kind of information that you need before having a particular kind of meeting. I mean, it's it's amazing. It can help model for our students thinking in advance about what would be the best use of our time together. That's, I think, really helpful for them to just model it and ask them to provide that information, not to mention to our faculty as well. So I appreciate that recommendation so much. And also, just like you said, and students should be the center at everything that we do. And it's so nice to hear about Esme and about Deja. Yes. <laughs> and after we stop recording, I'll ask you how to spell those names. Yeah. So this has just been so wonderful to have this conversation with you again, Michelle. And I'm looking forward to because I know it'll be not too far out till you have another book coming out. And I'm looking forward to having you back on the show so you can share more about that then. No, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure. And and I, I learned so much from your community. So thank you for all you're doing to provide that. Thank you. Thanks so much to Michelle Miller for coming back on today's episode. I always enjoy our conversations, whether they're over social media or whether they're uh, on the podcast. It's just always so great to learn from you. And thanks to all of you for listening to today's episode. It is just so hard to believe we are at episode 291, inching nearer to 300 episodes, all the way back from June of 2014 when this thing first kicked off. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like to connect on Twitter, I'd love to be able to correspond with you there. I'm at Bonnie, B-O-N-N-I. There's no E on that. B-O-N-N-I 208. And I'm also at Teaching in Higher Ed, which is T-I-H-I-G-H-E-R-E-D. So I'd love to connect with you in either place. And we'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed. Higher Ed.